Welcome to the Latin MedTech Leaders Podcast. This is a weekly conversation with MedTech leaders who have succeeded in Latin America. Today, our guest is Michael Barbier. Hey, Michael, it's great to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Hey, Julio. Thank you very much for the invitation. Awesome, Mike. So let's get the interview started. The listeners, I'm really, really thrilled to have Mike on the episode today. He is an outstanding Latin American expert, and you're going to understand why after I read his bio. So Michael is now principal at Medaron Consulting and director at Med Market Access. Michael assist our early stage life science companies with global expansion of initiatives and foreign companies expanding into the U.S. and beyond. Michael has held senior management roles in large blue chip and early stage companies and has established and grown medical device markets globally. He has had many positions, including director of Europe, Middle East, Africa, Canada, and Latin America for Mysonics a U.S. company that specializes in the development and commercialization of ultrasonic surgical devices for neurosurgical, spinal, advanced wound care, and general surgery procedures. Prior to that, he was region director, general manager for Latin America at Smith & Nephew, where he managed a $80 million PL and 200 direct employees. Michael was also the region director for Latin America at Johnson & Johnson and director for spinal and guided surgery for Latin America at Medtronic. So I am really, really excited about our conversation today, Mike, and I cannot wait to hear your tips, best practices, and experiences in Latin America. Absolutely. So to get the show started, Mike, could you please tell listeners about your journey to Latin America? I mean, how did you get involved with the region? Uh, well, it's interesting that uh, I'm very different to a lot of people that you see in the United States. The United States, as you know, has literally millions of Hispanics that have become Americanized that have come to the States. And I was actually the opposite. Uh, my father was in the oil business. And when I was very, very little, we moved to Venezuela. And, and I essentially grew up as an American expatriate in Venezuela. So uh, I speak Spanish natively, and over the years, I've become quite fluent in Portuguese. Uh, but my, my affinity, my association with the Latin America region started actually when I was very young, and it gives me the ability, certainly as, as a management executive, it gives me the ability to straddle both worlds, like culturally understand and identify with Latin American culture. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm fully versed in the way business operates in a U.S. environment, and that makes me very comfortable presenting about Latin American issues before a management organization of a U.S.-based company. Wow, Michael. That's really a fantastic personal and professional journey. And um, talking about professional experiences, how were you putting first in a position to manage the Latin American region? Did you start your career in the U.S., managing the U.S. Uh, operation of a U.S. medical device company and were transitioning over to Latin America? How did the whole thing unfold? Well, it was, uh, it was always my objective to get involved in international business. I, I studied international business as an undergraduate, and then I had an MBA from a small but fairly well-known international business school 
based out of Arizona called Thunderbird. So it was always my objective to enter international business. And of course, being a resident of South Florida and speaking the local languages, and when I started looking in my career, I was actually recruited by Baxter Healthcare for a Latin America role. And that was my entry to that. But that actually only lasted for a few years. Uh, And then uh, some roles popped up in Baxter Healthcare that had me managing joint ventures and manufacturing subsidiaries for Baxter Healthcare in Eastern Europe, Asia, Middle East, and Africa. So it's a little bit ironic. I started in Latin America, went over, spent literally nine years on these other emerging markets, which by the way, there is a lot of consistencies in emerging markets across the world. And many of the practices of a go-to-market strategy in a place like Latin America very much applies to other emerging markets worldwide. But that was my initial foray into Latin America. And I left for a while and then Uh, Later, I was recruited back by Medtronic to run their uh, neurosurgery and spine business unit. And pretty much from then on, I've had a significant amount of focus on Latin America, uh, right up until that most recent role that you mentioned at MySonics, where I once again had a big portion of Europe and and the areas surrounding it. Excellent, Mike. All right. So first, Mike, tell us about your overall perception of Latin America as a market to commercialize medical technologies? Is it a bit negative? I mean, what's your stand on Latin America? Well, Latin America has roughly 7% of the world's population. So no matter what, it's a significant market. Uh, You look at uh, countries like uh, Brazil, which uh, is approaching the 10th largest economy in the world, Argentina, which I believe is somewhere around the 12th or 13th. Don't quote me on that. But there are markets that are very relevant to the worldwide uh, medical market. The thing is, you have to put it in context. It's still relatively small compared to other markets like the U.S., which are uh, disproportionately responsible for a very large segment of the healthcare revenue. Uh, but nonetheless, these are important markets, and they have significant organic growth. The populations are growing. The populations are young. Their middle class is expanding, and there is considerably strong increased demand for quality healthcare. And then that drives the uh, potential to introduce new products and new technologies. Very good. All right, Mike. So what about the specific countries where you have been involved in? Well, I've had some involvement with virtually all of the regions. I have always had managed to keep my focus on the larger markets because uh, that's where the larger opportunity is. So uh, my focus has traditionally been Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, and Argentina. The other markets past that tend to be more secondary in terms of their overall market opportunity. Uh, so the strength of the focus of my business has been in those and ironically also Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is often lumped in with Latin America by most U.S. companies. And Puerto Rico, despite having a very small population, has a very, very strong penetration with Medicare and Medicaid. And so the reimbursement levels compared to other Latin American countries is through the roof. And it's a relatively easy market to manage. You must have FDA because it's an FDA jurisdiction. So you can't have products that have only CE mark. They must obviously have FDA but it's a small, potentially very lucrative market. 
Excellent point, Mike. All right, Mike. So what about your experience obtaining regulatory approvals or market clearances in the major markets in Latin America? What's your overall stand? And if you could share best practices with the, with the listeners, it'll be fantastic. Yeah, this is, uh, this is always a fairly tough portion of managing a go-to-market strategy because there's so many variables involved. And that's true even when you're dealing with organizations such as the FDA. But the key here is to uh, have a good regulatory strategy and then add a certain amount of time to that for unknown things that are almost guaranteed to pop up. Brazil for years was considered to be an incredibly complicated market to register. It's much better now they are now allowing, uh, for example, well, let me back up a little bit. So the Brazilian Anvisa organization, which is the equivalent of the FDA, has traditionally required two things. One is the usual sort of submission of regulatory documentation, et cetera. But secondly, they also require an actual site visit by their own employees to conduct a good manufacturing practices audit of wherever the manufacturing facility is. And, and over the years, this was the big time lag. You could run the submissions through in, in six or eight or nine months. However, you might have to wait two or three years before they would get around to do that GMP visit. So now, depending on the product and how the submission is made, they are willing to provide a provisional registration up until the point that the, the good manufacturing audits are conducted. And that allows you to get that registration, which ideally should be somewhere six to nine months, but in practice always ends up being higher, simply because they ask questions and it takes sometimes time for the principal company to answer those questions and for the process to restart again. So, so generally, I, I, you know, I tell clients to, to assume somewhere between 12 and 18 months depending on the complexity of the products. And then meanwhile, you get that provisional registration and that allows you to start generating sales in Brazil pending the results of that audit. And then additionally, they're starting to allow the use of notified bodies in Europe to be able to conduct the audit on their behalf. I, I don't personally have experience with that, but I understand that that's uh, one of the mechanisms that's available right now. Okay, that's for Brazil. What about the other major markets like Mexico, Colombia? So that's the toughest. The easiest is Colombia. Colombia is the only country that allows a foreign company to be the owner of the registration. And it's a very simple process. So as an American or as a foreign company, you can already own the registration. That brings big values. And typically, throughout most emerging markets, you have to have a local entity that owns the registration. And they require this primarily for post-market surveillance uh, issues. They want to know who they can go to in the event that there is an issue with a product. Uh, Columbia, however, allows a foreign company to register and be the owner of the registration, in which case, whenever you are the owner of the registration, you can name whatever distributors you want. And that's important because distributors are essentially sales organizations and some perform well and some don't. And you need to ideally have the ability to make changes if you need to. So uh, Columbia normally takes about six months, six or seven months. And the cost is also, that's a, one of the factors we have to look at. The cost is also a lot less. You can register in Colombia for under $10,000. Uh, whereas Brazil right now is running roughly about 100,000 reais. So it's uh, somewhere around $35,000, the cost of registering products. Uh, and so uh, 
So that covers Colombia and Brazil as the two extremes. And, and sort of in between is Mexico and Argentina. And both take roughly about a year to do the registration. And by the way, as long as we're talking about cost in both Mexico and Argentina, uh, roughly about ten, maybe $12,000 to conduct the registration. Again, depending on what the class of the product is. And then that, that'll affect, obviously, the timeline. These timelines I threw out are primarily for surgical products, which tend to be class three, or in Brazil, they add another class, they add class four, which is their highest risk stratification. But that ends up being class three in most other countries. But as long as we're talking about regulatory and the strategy related to regulatory, I think one of the most important things is the ability to have control over that registration in case you want to make changes in your local market. In Brazil, there are hosting companies, as they're called, they're usually some kind of a regulatory company or a law firm where they will register on your behalf, but they are non-commercial entities. They do not actually conduct sales. What they do is they enter into contracts with their principals, and that obligates them to act as the principal's proxy in the country. So you can end up owning your registration by proxy in Brazil and in Mexico. And Argentina, I haven't done it, but I understand that it can do it. And that's very important, especially Brazil being as big and as fragmented as a market as it is, or just as large as a market as it is. You have one distributor that may have a very strong in, say, the Rio area or even the Rio and Sao Paulo area that are relatively close to each other. But it's a big country, and they may not necessarily have the reach out to other peripheral markets on the north and the south of the country. So have owning the registration and giving yourself the option to name even more than one distributor for a given country, even Mexico. Mexico has you know the Mexico City area, but then there's also the Monterey area up north. And one distributor that's effective in one region may not necessarily be effective in the other. So a good regulatory strategy also has to take into consideration the potential for owning or controlling the registrations through a proxy. And it gives you a significant leg up. The downside that comes with that is the cost. Uh, if you name a distributor who is willing to undertake to pay for the cost of the registration, well, then that's an expense that the principal does not need to incur. And of course, after that, own the registration. And if you ever want to take it back, it's a process and it's an expense. So you manage that. In the case of Brazil, I think it's extremely valuable, but it's also a big nut to crack. $40,000 expense that is essentially upfront. And then you have to wait over a year to be able to register your products. So it's one of those factors within the overall go-to-market strategy. Excellent answer, uh, Mike. Thank you for that. And I'd like to add something about Colombia. You mentioned six months, and I have some great news for listeners. In BIMA, uh, which is Colombia's equivalent to the FDA, uh, the Ministry of Health recently issued a mandate where they are obligated to respond to your submission within 90 days. So if you have a very solid submission dossier package, you should get approval in 90 days. I just learned something there myself, uh, Julio. I appreciate that. Certainly when it comes to Colombia, uh, you know, Colombia is one of my absolute favorite places to visit, but it's also a fantastic resource for establishing key opinion leaders, what we in the industry call KOLs, key opinion leaders, which is, you know, surgeons that have not only a particular expertise, but are also very well respected in their communities. And on several occasions, I have introduced products in Latin America, but specifically used 
Colombian key opinion leaders to be able to act as proctors and then help with the training and the uh, professional talks at, at meetings, at, at trade shows, at congresses, uh, just because somehow uh, the Colombian surgical market allows for that. There's some really, really skilled people, some incredibly well-equipped centers. Yeah, Colombia always pleasantly surprises me. Very well said about Colombia. I am a Colombian myself, and I can attest to that. It is true. Okay, Mike, moving along, what about your experience with market access plans or strategies in the region? I just want to understand what's being the approach that the companies you were involved in had in Latin America. Do you have or did those companies have a proactive and well-thought-out strategy where they created a market access plan for each country they were planning to enter? Or did they have an opportunistic or a reactive approach where they just waited for the shooter to contact them at the treasurer or via email? So how was it? Uh, you know, I have to laugh a little bit. There's a famous U.S. general, I'm not sure exactly who it was, who said that, the very best laid battle plans go right out the window the minute the first bullet flies. And I have found that that also applies uh, very much in business, certainly in emerging markets. Um, but, but certainly the key things that you look at in a go-to-market strategy is, number one, reimbursement. Assuming we've got the regulatory portion out of the way is, number one, reimbursement. How are products paid for? And in all of these countries, you've got large single-payer organizations, and these large single payers are the public healthcare system. The public healthcare system is usually run through a series of fairly complicated and very bureaucratic bids and tenders, what in Spanish are called licitaciones. And these uh, bids can sometimes take years or even they'll occur and then they'll be challenged and they'll be canceled. But the public market is usually a big challenge. And then within the private market, there are significant differences, but the private market usually will pay a higher price for products and they will pay much more efficiently. And by the way, one of the reasons you have distributors in the U.S., there's, you know, many companies have sales agents and they have the sales agents because they have the relationships with doctors. And in many cases, having those relationships is very good. But I think, in my view, one of the key functions that a local distributor will have in Latin America in a market is just the ability to collect. Because if you try to run a business remotely from the U.S., it's almost impossible to collect. And that's why you really need a local sales agent. So looking at that market is the ability to sell, the ability to get reimbursed and get a good price for your products, your ability to collect on those. And then, of course, to see what the collection process, what those prices are like. Because in the public healthcare system, they may purchase a great deal more. They may purchase 20 times as many X of a reference product, uh, but it might be at a price that is so low that it's just simply not worth it. That happens a lot in Brazil, for example. They have this very large public health care system called the SUS, the Unified Health System, and they buy enormous amounts of products, but in some cases the prices are so low that it just simply isn't worth it. And then you focus on the private health care market. So these are kind of the key things in Assuming that you can sell, that you look at each individual market in terms of what that reimbursement is like and the ability to collect or the ability for the distributor to collect and get paid on your products. That's, you know, I tend to look at things in a fairly abstract way. And that's for me, is absolutely key. So, Mike, would you agree that 
company should have a market access plan or at least an outline of their strategy before they enter a market or not? I mean, what's really your opinion on the approach that companies should have in countries in Latin America? Or should just wait for a shooter to contact them? It's funny you ask that because I have seen companies that have sort of blindly just kind of jumped into a market without really understanding it. And then and then they're surprised by it, their lack of performance or lack of ability to collect. And so, yeah, you absolutely have to understand what you're getting into with any foreign market. And in the case of these markets, what I try to do for my clients is I try to paint a picture, a panorama and say, okay, this is what the market looks like. It has these dimensions. It has these particular qualities. It has these traps. It has these sand traps it can get stuck in. It also has these tremendous opportunities for companies that are able to position themselves within certain areas. And understanding where those opportunities and where those traps are is absolutely critical, I think, pretty much in any go-to-market strategy worldwide. Well said. Okay, Mike, moving along, let's talk about distributors. And there are usually two ways to approach a market. I mean, I'm speaking high level. One is a hands-off management strategy where you let your distributor do everything. You just ship and collect payments from the distributor and ship the products to them, and you let them free in the local market. Or other companies usually have a local agent, or if they are more mature, they have a local office, of course, a country manager. Uh, and that local representative in whatever shape that representative is could help the distributor generate demand, a partner with marketing or co-marketing initiatives, etc. So what's been your experience? I mean, what do you suggest companies do in Latin America? A handoff management approach or a hybrid approach? Well, if you look at a distributor virtually anywhere in the world, and that even applies to a sales agent in the U.S., which people sometimes refer to as distributors, even though they're just sales agents. What is the absolute most valuable thing that a distributor has? And very often that's their intimacy with their market, their understanding of how the system works and their relationship with the key opinion leaders and the surgeon community in general. And of course, I'm talking about surgical products here, but the same would apply to other areas as well. So one of the things, if you don't get involved as a company, they're going to try to protect that intellectual property, those relationships that they have, because they know that's what really makes them valuable to other potential principals in the market. In my case, I want to get to know who those doctors are. I, I want to develop a CRM platform and have people populating it so I know what doctor is doing what and where and how. So that becomes the intellectual property of the company, not just of the distributor. So uh, in the distributor selection, though, you want to get a highly capable distributor that has the ability to literally do all those things. And you can give them the products and they can hit the ground running and make it happen. So I want highly qualified distributors. I don't want to do their work for them. So what the model that I like best is uh, the clinical specialist model, where you have somebody from the company that regularly visits the customer and regularly visits their most important customers and is there actually to support the distributors here to help provide technical and clinical information and teach them and work with them. But at the same time, that person is also developing relationships with those key clients 
And then that becomes part of the principal's intellectual property. So my distributor selection is always pick the absolute best, most solid distributor that you can that does not manage a competitive line. And that's one of the big challenges is, is making sure that you're not selecting a distributor that has a competitive product line and then has the luxury of deciding you know, which product he wants to choose without necessarily putting all the time and effort and energy that you would want them to put into your particular product. Okay, Mike. So let's talk about how to search, select, and conduct due diligence on distributors. I mean, what are your tips on this? Uh, well, it's a challenge, especially when you're going into a market for the first time, as I say, in a greenfield environment. I think surgeons are the absolute best source of referral. Again, I'm talking surgical markets, but people that are in the market are usually the absolute best source of referrals. But one of the best ways to enter a market, if you're not familiar with who the players are, is to go in and see the doctors. And you can do this even as a foreigner. All you need to do is understand who might be the players. And that usually just basic research can tell you who the top oncologist is or who the top brain surgeon is and reach out to them directly. And sometimes you can do that even through LinkedIn and through social media, but also it's good to have face-to-face. -face. And they will tell you, uh, when you're talking to these uh, opinion leaders, they can tell you who is in the market, who are the good distributors. You have to be careful that they don't recommend their own brother-in-law, which sometimes happens, uh, but they can tell you who the players are. And in many cases, those players already have competitive products, so that becomes a challenge. But then what you do is you go through this process and you're working with your actual end user. Always look at where the rubber meets the road because that's the most important thing. And at that point, they will share with you who potential distributors are. And then you go through an interview process. And in some cases, you take it a step further and you go through uh, some of these actual um, due diligence organizations that exist in the U.S. that they look at it in depth. But it is very difficult to find out exactly who you're dealing with, but there are other means you can find out anecdotally through surgeon community, through networking interactions, and people like myself who have very extensive networks or yourself who have very extensive networks are usually one of the best sources to be able to, uh, to find a good distribution partner in any market. Totally correct, uh, Mike. Thanks for that answer. Well, uh, what about end user demand generation strategies in countries in Latin America? Have you ever been involved with things of this nature? I mean, marketing strategies, end user demand strategies where you needed to reach out to the end user on behalf of client or your own employer, and you had to help the distributor generate that demand because distributors do not always, of course, depending on the product, but they don't always generate enough demand uh, for products. So what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, and that's true in many cases because they don't necessarily understand it as effectively as possible. And usually when you bring in somebody from the outside, like I mentioned earlier, a clinical specialist, somebody to assist the company, then all they really need to do is tee up the meetings with these surgeons. And then you can come in with your experts. In many cases, it also adds a tremendous amount of credibility to the distributor when they show up and they've got product specialists from the manufacturing company that comes in from overseas and is willing to sit down and talk to the doctors and present a particular technology in order to generate that demand. The other part of it, of course, is also having the skill to be able to drive whatever quotation processes they might have and through the administrative processes present a product that is a new technology or a better technology or a lower cost, whatever the key drivers are. Those are all the critical elements. But I find that clinical specialist model is the best one for getting doctors' attention. 
Very good, Mike. All right, so let's speak about pricing in Latin America. Some people say that Latin America is a very price-sensitive uh, region. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it is. It's a function of compared to who, right? The United States has 5% of the world's population. However, it, most companies, if you look at the P&Ls of the very large companies of the Boston Scientifics, the Johnson & Johnsons, the Medtronics, normally the U.S. is about roughly 40% of sales. And that throws everybody off because there's no other market in the world that can compete with that. And foreign companies tend to look at the U.S., or especially American companies, tend to look at the U.S. as the benchmark, as the normal. But the fact is, the United States, we spend a disproportionate amount of money per capita on health care. So the U.S. is not the normal. It's not the benchmark. And that's one of the toughest things to convince a foreign company or a manager from a U.S. market who believes that the sale price for his particular device in the U.S. is the normal and that therefore everything that is different is abnormal. And it's actually not true. The U.S. is the outlier. Now, having said that, Latin America does have, for the most part, uh, lower reference pricing. And it's you have to look at that, especially even, and that'll change even within the market. In Brazil, the example I mentioned earlier of the public healthcare system versus the private healthcare system. Sometimes in, with some products, the prices in the local private healthcare system might be two or three or four times the price of the same reference product in the public sector. Okay, great insight. What about reimbursement? I know you touched on that already, but uh, let's get a little deeper into that. If you have been involved with meetings or lobbying efforts with government agencies or Ministry of, of Health in Latin America to try to get a product reimbursed, or also at insurance companies. I mean, a lot of countries in Colombia, insurance companies really own the patient and they really control reimbursement. So what are your thoughts on reimbursement? And that's also true in Brazil as well. I think one of the big factors in that question is the function of innovation. If you have a highly innovative product, and it's something that's truly new and different, and that's obviously my favorite type of product to bring to market, uh, then you have the unique position of being able to set the price, to set the benchmark. You know, you look obviously at the predicate device and you're able to show, wow, this is much more innovative, has much better patient outcomes. It has a much lower cost overall, even though the price may be higher. All of those things you can do if you're driving something that's highly innovative. If you're coming in with a product that is more for lack of a better term, me too, then that becomes a real big challenge because they just look at the predicate device. And these are less sophisticated markets than you'll see in the US and Europe. And for the most part, making the argument that the use of this product results in savings over time is very challenging because they have very specific budgets and they don't necessarily will care in many cases whether or not a patient is staying five nights in the uh, hospital versus six nights. So it's a big challenge. When you come in and you drive a new product, you're in a good place. However, if you've got a more common product, for lack of, for not wanting to use the word commoditized, it's more of a challenge and you have to be able to drive efficiencies or bundle with other products. And you have to be careful because there's some markets, there's restrictions around that. But sometimes being able to bundle a series of products together and get reimbursement for the whole thing can be a very good strategy when you're dealing with administrative sectors of healthcare systems. Very good. All right. So let's speak about a kind of a boring topic, shipping and importation in Latin America. 
what are your experiences or thoughts on this? Is it easy? Is it, is it ugly? I mean, what about it? I can't say that that's from from a management perspective. That's something that I, as a manager, have had to spend a lot of time or energy on. Perhaps something as peripheral to that that is of, of important strategic value are the duties that are assessed on product when they arrive when they're shipped into the country. And uh, for example, Brazil for many medical devices, the duties assessed on high as thirty five percent or so. What distributors may not tell you is they actually claim some of that back on their taxes at the end of the year. They can claim some of it back on their taxes, uh, but the cost of money is also fairly high in these markets. So if you have to wait a year to get your money, there is a cost associated with that. But then, yeah, usually you have the local sales tax or what's referred to as the VAT, the VAT, and, uh, and that's a legitimate expense. And that actually adds a lot to the cost of the product. And very often people look at an end user price for a product and then they assume that they can just discount 30% off of that or 20%. And then that would be a good acquisition price for a distributor. And that's just not true. When you start to go through all of the expenses related to importing of a product and then paying local duties and paying the VAT and then having the products shipped and then going through all the regular marketing expenses, it's not really viable for most distributors to work with very, very slim margins. They become unmotivated, especially since they tend to have other lines uh, you also want to allow them the opportunity to generate a local margin that results in an incentive for them to drive the products. And in order to do that, you really have to need to understand what that whole shipping process is and how the duties and import costs affect the overall cost in the local market. Excellent. All right. So let's speak about another kind of ugly topic FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, what's been your experience with corruption or bribery in the region? You know, I came from companies such as uh, Johnson & Johnson and Medtronic and Smith and & Nephew, and, and compliance is an absolute paramount. And, and it's a challenge. It's an ongoing challenge that has to be managed effectively. In many of my management meetings, uh, at Smith & Nephew, I had a dedicated compliance manager, and there was no significant meeting that did not have a compliance dimension to the meeting. There, at some point, we were talking about our processes. Literally, everybody within the entire organization, whether it's supply chain or sales, it doesn't matter. The education relating to compliance is constant, and it's ongoing. And it's a challenge because these markets do have some intrinsic corrupt nature's practices in it. But what I found is if you work at it, you can turn a highly compliant practice into a competitive advantage. In other words, I've talked to surgeons that said, where I've told them, no, we're not going to give you what our competitor gives you. But in my case, your name will never, ever be associated with anything untoward. You can bet that with us, your name will grow through the use of our products and, and we will support you in many ways. But what we won't do is do anything untoward and that will help your own reputation in the long term. And selling true ethics compliance as a competitive advantage is something that actually works. That's a great insight, Mike. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, Mike, before we move on to closing remarks, uh, are there any other areas that we haven't covered that you 
think listeners should include in their market access or entry strategies in Latin America? Um, well, we've covered a fair amount of ground here, but one of the things I think I would like to highlight is the importance of being able to look at Latin America as a total market and really understand what you're getting yourself into. So uh, the question of focus becomes paramount in the good go-to-market strategy will basically have you focus on top core markets and within those core markets focus on you know where the opportunities are whether it's a private sector or public sector and understanding that there's a lot of temptation to add another market and somebody will show up and say look i've got a doctor in peru who's interested and before you know it it ends up becoming a real resource drag on the organization to add a smaller incremental market. And the focus is really important. If you can grow sales in Brazil 5%, it's usually equal to opening a new market. And that 5% increase in Brazil in the first year will probably continue to grow in some organic level. And your overall strategy is very well served by having a good understanding of the markets and a focus on where the opportunity is. Well said. All right. Mike, what major trends do you see in Latin America that are relevant to our discussion today? Well, there's a number of trends going on. I know that we're starting to see some more uh, public and private partnerships going on, PPPs, where government is getting involved, providing incentives for companies to move into their markets, providing incentives for advantages to get into local bids, etc. If you have local manufacturing, we're seeing some of that. We're also seeing much more cohesiveness in these markets. They seem to be interacting uh, between them much more effectively. There's more free trade agreements and other agreements of this nature. So there's a unification trend that we're seeing that where the markets are a little bit less disparate, a little bit more cohesive than they were. And that's very good. That makes it possible for you to be able to leverage what you're doing, say, in Argentina with what you're doing in Brazil. And then, you know, the big watch out, obviously, is these markets tend to be cyclical and there are trends that will occur based on socioeconomic financial issues and things. And, and understanding with general direction of the market is important in terms of being able to set targets and objectives for the year. Some countries perform well over time and then something happens, they have an election, that kind of thing, and then that trend will change for a while. You see this all the time, and it's an ongoing part of managing not just Latin America, but any emerging markets and understanding where you can take the market in any given year so that you don't have ugly surprises. And at the same time, that goes both ways, because if you know what you're doing and you're on an upswing, you don't want to be surprised by overperformance because you want to know that you're going to achieve that higher performance level. Excellent, Mike. All right, Mike, before we close, do you have any final thoughts to our listeners? In other words, what would you say to a small or mid-sized medtech company that haven't looked at Latin America or that is just starting to explore the region, both as a clinical trial destination or as a potential market to expand its footprint? Yeah, we, we really haven't talked about the clinical side of it. And as I'm sure some of your listeners know, the European organizations, the healthcare organizations, where traditionally have been very friendly to foreign companies coming in and establishing the initial safety studies so they can get the CE mark and start selling in Europe, well, that's going to become much more challenging in the future. And I think over time, 
uh, we're going to see an increased demand for countries and markets where you can do initial safety studies, demonstrate the safety of a product, and then move forward on to demonstrating efficacy of products. And I think certain countries, especially Colombia, but uh, certain countries are going to really lend themselves to the opportunity to use those markets as locations to do your initial safety studies, to do first-in-man studies, uh, that kind of thing. So I know it's, it's late in our interview to be uh, talking about a subject that I'm sure could take up a full interview, but I believe also that you're far more qualified than I am to speak on that. Uh, but yeah, overall, I think the Latin America will continue to play a stronger and stronger role in the global healthcare system as they become more sophisticated, as they work together, the world is becoming a smaller place. So yeah, I would absolutely encourage any company certainly looking to develop new technologies as a place for, for clinical development, but also as a place to be able to pick a few key selected markets and go ahead and establish a presence because that makes an early stage company more attractive. If they have an exit plan that includes being acquired by a large multinational, several years down the road and, and have multinational companies looking at them and they see that they have a footprint outside the U.S. and they've developed uh, markets effectively, not just in the U.S., but outside, it gives a lot more credibility and makes that company more valuable. Very well said, uh, Mike. So, Mike, thank you so much for being on our episode today. I truly enjoyed our chat today, our conversation I absolutely loved your insights in the region, and I'm sure listeners did as well. Thank you again. It was a privilege to have you here today with us, and I look forward to another interview on another more specific topic. All right? Very good. It'll be my pleasure. Uh, thank you very much, and congratulations for everything you're doing online and being able to take these messages and bring them across to all of these new markets. Excellent, Mike. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Thank you.